Gary Parrish, it's Thursday, April 27th. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me. Uh, not a lot of significant things have happened in the sport since we last spoke, but some have. Among them, UNLV putting together a really nice recruiting class for 2017. Norlander wrote about that earlier today. Uh, we'll discuss it later in this podcast, but I wanted to start with uh, the NBA announcing the official list of college players who have declared early for the 2017 NBA draft. There are 137 names on it. Some of them you know, some of them you don't. It's a record number, which of course led to some being outraged and shocked and all these uh, other things that these quote stupid kids making these quote stupid decisions. Uh, and with that opinion, I, I, I could not disagree more. I explained it in a column. I'll expand momentarily. But first, I wanted to get your thoughts on it, Norlander. Uh, what do you make of 137 underclassmen in college declaring early for the NBA draft? I make for it that it's tremendous. Um, I think we are getting to a point here where as media members we have evolved on this and i think a lot of fans have evolved on it some haven't um some media members perhaps haven't as well they look at the numbers and they see that there are only 60 spots available and say what are these people doing you know there's some guys that are delusional and that's definitely true gp i mean there are definitely guys who have declared without an agent that have no shot at getting drafted some have no shot at getting an invite to the combine and so that will happen, and then it will not happen for the guys that don't get an invite. And then they'll return to school. But the point is, and I'm going to credit John Gassaway with this, because I first saw him pitch this idea like five years ago, and I'm all for it, generally speaking. His, his thing is everyone's eligible for the draft. No matter what, you are eligible for the draft, and if you don't get selected, uh, his is kind of an extreme and like you're eligible. The draft happens. If you don't get drafted, you go back to school. That's fine. That's never going to happen. But the point that I'm agreeing with is that if you want to consider your opportunities and options to play professionally, whether it's the NBA to just get a look at where you stand, even if you know you're not a top 50 prospect, let's say you're you're hovering in that 80 to 120 range and you want to use this opportunity in whatever ways that you can to try and see where you stand and what you might need to work on. There's no reason why you shouldn't have that. The current system, I think, is pretty much perfect in that players have until 10 days after the combine ends to make their decision. Otherwise, if you, you know the 11th day hits, the NCAA says you're done. You can't come back. Um, the NBA's deadline's further out, uh, but that's more for international prospects or the rare kid who isn't at an American college and, and whatnot. Um, so I have no issue with it. You'll have a lot of these guys going back as it is. And for those that don't, our colleague Sam Pacini is, is really heavy on this, and I do think he's correct. For those that simply want to declare and are totally fine with having played college one, two, three years, school's not for them anymore. They want to take a chance at going to the D-League, or they want to take a chance at getting a pro contract in Venezuela or, or Spain or wherever. If you want to do that, again, it's your life. I don't have really an issue with it. We are so much better suited now. Uh, with the system in place than what it was five, ten years ago. So I have zero issue. This is the biggest number ever, so I think that's why, GP, it's a conversation piece. But this should be the number that people should be expecting going forward. The, you know, Well over 150 people uh, that are under technically underclassmen that are declaring for the draft. 
College basketball is going to be just fine. The majority are going to head on back. And for those that don't head back and don't get drafted, it does not necessarily mean they made the wrong decision because you don't know where they are in their life and what they think might be best for them. Right. I mean, the point I try to make in the column is you shouldn't be surprised that it's 137. You should be surprised that it's not 537. Like there is little to no downside for underclassmen declaring, uh, particularly if you do not retain representation uh, because you can withdraw uh you have up until may 24th and to come back to school so there's 137 college underclassmen who have declared right now like you said most of them and if not most then certainly a lot of them are going to withdraw from the draft they're going to go through the process get feedback and respond accordingly so this 137 number is going to be much smaller by the time we get to may 25th then there's going to be the no-brainers who hire an agent go in the lottery whatever And then people always like to talk about, but what about the kids who don't get picked in the first round because only the top 30 picks are guaranteed contracts? Well, that's true. Um, But I did a study on this a few years back. Um, I I trust that it's still basically true and probably more true today than it was back then. Um, Second round picks who are American college players almost always get NBA uh, NBA contracts. Almost always. So like it used to be, you get drafted in the second round, you're guaranteed nothing. That is technically true, but almost every NBA team signs their second round picks to some sort of contract. Beyond that, they go, okay, well, fine, I hear you, but what happens to the kids who don't get drafted? Well, some of them end up in the NBA too. Yogi Ferrell? Like, Wayne Selden went undrafted last year, started playoff games for the Memphis Grizzlies last week. All right? So it's not like being undrafted is a death sentence. There are 70... Uh, players in the NBA right now, 70, who were undrafted coming out of college, 70. So just because you don't get drafted doesn't mean you're uh, never going to play basketball again. And like you pointed out, uh, the NBA is not the only place to play basketball. You can play overseas. You can play in the D League. You can earn a better salary playing outside of the NBA than the typical average graduate from the school you're leaving. And Almost all of the 137 players that are on that list fall into one of the categories I just named. They're either going to come back to school, they're either going to be drafted and become millionaires, they're either going to not get drafted and still become millionaires, or they're either going to not get drafted and end up playing basketball somewhere for a paycheck next year, making more money than your average college graduate. And then there will be a handful, a small handful, that really look up and go, oh wow, what did I do? But like I pointed out before, and I mentioned in the column, there are college kids who drop out of school for for foolish reasons all over this country every week. Some of them decide they want to be an actor, move to Hollywood. Some of them drop out, they want to start a band. Some of them stop, drop out, they just want to bartend. Some of them drop out, they just like whatever. And we don't spend every day of our life worried about them. You know, there are actually people out in the world who need you to worry about them. College basketball players who declare for the draft probably probably aren't high on that list. Yeah, I uh, would agree. In fact, I feel like we had uh, something of this kind of conversation last year or the year before. Um, what will be interesting to me is seeing how many stay and and then the ones that stay that might not be names that are overwhelmingly obvious choices and decisions – uh, if they can sneak into the second round, or in the case of Selden and Farrell, who happen to be seniors, or was Selden 
was Selden? No, early? yeah, yeah. He, he, no, he's a junior. He left early. He was a junior. Um, I was just thinking as you were talking through that, I was like, but was he? Yeah, so I guess he was a junior. But What's funny you is you what? go back you go back and look at whatever year the recruiting class was at Kansas. Yeah. Um, it was Andrew that Wiggins. Was yeah, it was Andrew Selden. Wiggins, Joel Embiid, Wayne Selden, um, Connor Frankamp. There were six players in that class. Mason was in it, right? Yes, Frank Mason was Crazy. the was the least heralded, and the only one who actually made it to his senior year and became the national player of the year. It's really, really quite interesting. Um, but I feel as though the public is starting to become at least a little more aware of of what's in play here. This just again, it is a better situation than forcing these college kids to have all of a week and a half after the season ends to make a decision. Um, it gives them more information. And the only like the only people that I feel like really that are <laughs> that aren't a fan of this in, a, in like a genuine way is coaches. But this is that's part of the breaks. I mean, if you've got guys good enough that they could even consider leaving, um, then you've done a good job either recruiting them or or coaching them and building up their skill set. And, and that's a good thing for your program. And it's something that you can use to recruit. Now it, it, it kind of stinks cause it hits during this window where we, you know, we're in a live recruiting window. Coaches were out last weekend seeing prospects in person and you're trying to either get late commitments as we'll talk about with UNLV or just figure out who's going to be on your roster and who's not. So you're kind of torn for a two to four week period, but ultimately that's small potatoes compared to like, let's just do this do the players right here, give them, the, you know, give them plenty of time to make their decisions. Everything's going to be just fine overall. And yeah, you're right though. Um, it's 187 this year. I would expect it would get, uh, I, I think it'll crack 200 next year. I think we're going to get more to that point where just guys are going to be testing the waters and it's just going to kind of be a natural thing. Let it happen and the market will play itself out. Um, so in terms of the players who have real decisions to make, Guys who have already made them and guys who have to make them coming up. Who's been hurt? Who's been helped? I know you wrote about this at CBSSports.com. Uh, who, who's a winner, if you will, at the draft, uh, at the uh, early entry deadline? Who's a loser? Well, I, I looked at 32 teams, basically, because with so many guys declaring, um, there was plenty to look at. Um, what do you want to hit first? Do you want to hit the winners, the losers, or the guys that are the teams that are twisting right now? Winners. You tell me. Okay, the winners, uh, undeniably, in my in my opinion, right now, Michigan State is the biggest one, only because Miles Bridges returning takes Michigan State from without him, undeniable top fifteen team. But you know, we'd see with him, I think, an undeniable top four, top five team. I think with how good that they are this season. Or they're setting up to be next season. They are the single biggest winner. I would put Arizona right behind them because even though Arizona's losing some guys to the NBA draft and they're still, you know, is Raleigh Alkins not going to come back? Alonzo Trier is a first team All American type of player. And so you have that with Bridges, who will be a preseason first team All American, I think. I think Alonzo Trier will be a preseason first team All American. And another program that I actually have as a winner is a former first team All American in Grayson Allen in a preseason national player of the year pick. Now, Duke is losing a ton, but you tell me Duke without Grayson Allen, which is what I was expecting the situation to be, versus Duke with Grayson Allen, that's an ultimate win. I have to believe Frank Jackson's going to come back. Um, 
he could go, and if he went, he would get drafted, I think. But I, I think he could have a huge boost in his stock next season. Uh, he's technically still testing the waters. Um, one more GP. I mean, I've got a number of, of winners, but another potential All-American type decision, and this one wasn't as up in the air nearly as much as Bridges or Trier or Grayson. Devontae Graham's going to come back to Kansas. And what I wrote was, I could totally see Graham making this decision. Like, entering last season, Graham was projected as a 25 to 30, top 30 guy on draft boards. Mason was never seen as that. Graham was seen as the better NBA prospect, without a doubt. Um, I would say his stock basically steadied, maybe dipped slightly in a strong draft. Maybe he sees the opportunity next year on a very good Kansas team to have Frank Mason-type impact be a potential National Player of the Year candidate, and with that, up his stock. So Kansas, Duke, Arizona, and Michigan State, to me, are the four biggest winners because they're the four teams that have potential first-slash-second-team All-American types on them. If you want to throw Villanova in there, Brunson, I actually think, could be as well, but he wasn't seen as a likely, like, he was, he was presumed to be coming back more than, I think, the other four. But if you want to toss Villanova in there, those are my five winners. Losers is the big one, the obvious one, Kentucky. Yeah, undeniably Kentucky GP um, because and you wrote on this as well. They just Calipari has never had this much statistical turnover. It like he obviously reloads every year, but Wenyan Gabriel is the only guy coming back. And actually, I'm I'm way in on Gabriel in general. Um, but he's the he was not an impact player for Kentucky. He was just he was a rotational guy kind of this year okay so he's the only guy that's coming back they're hurt because briscoe leaves that you know that's the i think briscoe would have been bettered by returning but whatever and then isaac Humphreys was not expected to go so he's gone and now hamadou diallo who didn't even see the floor this year he hasn't gone yet okay? right but he is he is really one of the three or four most athletic high school prospects i've ever seen in person um i'm not comparing him in terms of his play to Andrew Wiggins, but I'm saying when I saw Hamadou Diallo play in person, the the other person whose athleticism on the defensive end and bounce uh, reminded me of was Wiggins. So he is he is a very enticing prospect. We'll see if he goes. If he does, though, that's a piece Kentucky thought it would have had last year that it won't. Gonzaga's hurt by losing Zach Collins and Nigel Williams-Goss. Nigel Williams-Goss, to me, would have probably been my preseason pick for National Player of the Year if he returned. I don't fault him whatsoever for going. Collins, man, he could have been a, a top 20 player easily in the sport next year. Uh, so Gonzaga's hurt. Oregon's hurt. They lose Jordan Bell, Tyler Dorsey, Dylan Brooks. Bell probably doesn't go if he doesn't have a huge march, but he's gone. Dorsey was, from what I understand, kind of always going to go. Um, Brooks uh, you know, we're talking guys that had really solid years that uh, that would have had really good chances at being first, second team All-American. So Oregon, to me, takes a huge step back. UCLA is a big loser because they they lose Lonzo. You lose Lonzo, it's going to be a big step back. But they lose Ike and Agbogu, who, I, listen, UCLA was awesome this year. Ike Anagbagu was like the seventh or eighth most recognizable player on the team. But he was a freshman, tests well, extremely physical. He's gone. He's really young, too. Like super I, young. He's right. going to be drafted totally off potential. I have no idea what he's going to do or not do at the NBA level. But TJ Leaf, obviously, he's got to go. He was too good. Uh, I could see TJ Leaf basically having hit his 
uh, prospective peak in terms of his stock. I don't know if he could have been better next year than what he was, and they wait on Welsh and Aaron Holiday. Real quick, South Carolina is a big loser. Right. P.J. Dozier, like, Sundarius was going because he was a senior, so they were going to take a step back. Dozier, in my opinion, had a good chance at being the best player in the league next season, and they've got some solid talent coming back in SEC and plenty of incoming talent, but I think Dozier was ready to make a big jump. He's ultimately going to play off his age and his potential. So South Carolina, I've got more. You can check this out on CBSSports.com. But those are the those are the standout teams that are hurt by these draft decisions by guys who are definitely gone. All the names we've mentioned, these guys have signed with an agent. They will not be back. So which coach is sweating it out the most right now? Um, well, okay, I'll give you mine. But you, who do you think? Who do you? Who would be your pick for the one coach that right now? is is twisting the most and maybe has the most true uncertainty with guys that will come back or not maybe roy because he's got two guys still sitting out there right yeah um i would say it would have been roy if if barry first of all joel barry that was a really weird deal he announced on like a sunday and then withdrew on a monday or something like that yeah, I think it was announced on a yeah, Monday and then withdrew on Tuesday. Look, I've never seen that was the fastest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was <laughs> That's an official what she announcement. Said. Yeah, yeah, it was. A, it was. A, oh, by the way, shout out to Devin Downey. We hit the South Carolina portion. And I yeah. didn't do it. So. Yeah, Sh- shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry MF and T. There we go. Um, so it, yeah, I've just I've never seen an official announcement from a school, and then within 24 hours, it was like, ah, you know what, I'm good. Um, so Barry will be back. Another potential. I feel like I got 20 first team, but there really will be a number of, of legitimate preseason first and second team All-American candidates. I think that's really good. Um, but you wait on Theo Pinson, who if you watch Carolina this year, he was injured plenty. But when he was on the floor, they were definitely like just a different team. I'm telling you, if Pinson isn't on the floor in that final four, I don't necessarily think Carolina wins the national title. And then Tony Bradley, who might go. I mean, he was a freshman off the bench. Um, could be really, really good next year. With Pinson and Bradley and getting Barry back, because you're losing Justin Jackson for sure, Carolina is a realistic team in contention to repeat as national champs. If they lose Pinson and Bradley, if they lose them both, I think we, we really got to discuss, GP, where we want to put Carolina, because those are two important pieces they'd be losing. And then Rick Pitino, listen, Jalen Johnson's gone, but Dang Adele and Donovan Mitchell are still deciding. Um Donovan Mitchell, I think, could be an outright, like, just stud, star, top 10 player in college basketball next season if he opts to return. But will he? If they get Mitchell and Adele back, you can still make the case if you want. I wouldn't, but you can make the case that Louisville is right there for the number one team in the preseason rankings. Um, Keep an eye on that real quick. Motley is the guy who was a top 10 player of value. So Baylor is, I think Baylor is the one team that twists the most on the decision of one player right now because you can't deny, and you were on the Motley stuff from the get-go, GP, with what Motley provided last season and basically was largely responsible for Baylor you know, accruing such a strong resume, if he doesn't come back, I think Baylor will still be NCAA tournament quality, but they will, they will be not the same remotely as if they were with him. And then Archie Miller in Indiana, real quick. I mean, Thomas Bryant, Robert Johnson, James Blackman Jr., they're all checking the waters out. Bryant, I could see going either way. I think Robert Johnson and Blackman should come back. But just in general, what Archie Miller is or isn't going to inherit in his first year, very intrigued to see what that team is heading into next season. I think he'll have some success no matter what. Um, 
it's but there are plenty of teams. If you go to the if you go to the store, I mean, there's from Purdue. I mean, I I thought Swanigan had signed with an agent, but he hasn't yet. Um, so if, I, I would think he's got to go. I mean, after his year, GP, um, he should probably go. But if he doesn't, then Purdue. Then if all right, we can agree if he, if Swanigan for whatever reason comes back. Then he's our preseason player of the year, right? I mean, he's got. Oh it, God, of course, right? yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I don't expect him back in school, but if he's back in school, he's got to be everybody's preseason national player of the year. Has I mean, I mean, you could have reasonably, and I fought for this for a while, but then ultimately, like the way the season played out, the season played out. Um, you could have reasonably made him national player of the year this year, and uh, so if he comes back, he's the no-brainer. Like it's one of those things where we don't even have to talk about it. Like Caleb Swanigan's preseason national player of the year. I would agree. Yes, and there are plenty of good candidates coming, but he, with what he did, if you, but I can't see him coming back. He's he's got to go. So anyway, from Purdue to USC to Michigan, Arkansas, Xavier, SMU, there are plenty of teams still twisting right now. And then I will update this once the deadline passes, May twenty four. Uh, we'll have an updated story of just like who was hurt and who was helped because we'll we'll get more answers in the coming weeks. I mentioned it earlier. It's worth pointing out now. Um, UNLV has somehow put together what is now, according to 247 Sports, a top 12 recruiting class in the country for the class of 2017. Like in the past couple of days, they've gotten uh, a commitment from a five-star player, a commitment from a four-star player who was previously signed with Oklahoma State and Brad Underwood, and a commitment from what some people believe is the number one junior college prospect in America. You wrote about this earlier today. Uh, What's Marvin Menzies up to out in Las Vegas? This, okay. GP, has there ever been a case, maybe there has, but ever been a case where a team from a multi-bid conference, Mm -hmm. or just a team, won fewer than 15 games in a season, UNLV won 11 last year, and the very next season turned around a top 12 recruiting class. I don't think this has ever happened before, but I didn't put that in the story because, honestly, that is a lot of research, and I just wanted to get this thing turned. Um, If it's happened, maybe once or maybe twice ever, uh, Brandon McCoy is, is the big one. He is, in the eyes of some, a top 10 prospect, could very well be a one-and-done type. He's the five-star guy that leads a, a solid class. There are seven new dudes coming into the program next year with UNLV. In fact, uh, clearly Menzies didn't see this coming because they've got 14 guys on scholarship. You're only allowed 13, so he's going to have to figure out a way uh, to, get to, to fix that because you can't have 14 on scholarship. So someone's going to have to give up or someone's going to have to transfer out. Um, this is really interesting. Um, I don't know if it means UNLV will become a tournament team next year. The program itself has been – it's been okay. And I'm talking like over the past 15 years basically. Like under Kruger, they had some solid stuff. Dave Rice was able to get some nice recruits in. There was never a class as deep as what Menzies has developed here. And Menzies, you know, to his credit, when he was at New Mexico State, he actually recruited guys that developed into pros – um, so this isn't like totally out of nowhere, but at the same time, it's kind of out of nowhere. I mean, McCoy going to, uh, to UNLV when he was being courted by some serious programs is a big time get, um, a huge get. And it's just not typical for us to be speaking about UNLV making serious headway on the recruiting trail to this extent. Like, yeah, you occasionally get a five-star guy, maybe pair it with a four-star and you've got a nice top 30 class or whatever. We're at the point here where UNLV is, is is basically knocking on the door of being a top 10 class, and we'll see how it shakes out at the end of the day. Um, 
it's definitely really interesting because this team was not relevant whatsoever this year, nor was it expected to be. And in the wake of lo- or firing Rice and and you know just the disaster that was that job search. I mean, you know, from Mick Cronin to Chris Beard taking it and then leaving, and then they kind of were on the fritz and just they were able to get Menzies, so they took him. This has paid off in a big way right now. Um, we'll see if it if, if it amounts to something. I, t- I tag my PSGP with like I don't believe that like college basketball is better when UNLV is really good. The program was awesome for like six or seven years under Tark. That is obviously you can't tell the story of college basketball without that period. And Tark is such a huge figure. But this is not you know this is not a top thirty program or any means. But if they're going to be good and it's going to make that league better, then that's obviously a good thing for college hoops overall. We'll see what ends up coming. But Brandon McCoy is the big, big name to know. And then uh, Shakur Houston. Yeah, I'm hope, I hope I got that last name right. He's the Juco player of the year. He'll probably be an, a, a guy of immediate impact. But, yeah, as you said, this is not for 2018. These are guys that have signed and will be on the roster next year. So UNLV will be a, uh, a very trendy team to be talking about as, as a team that's you know a, a huge bounce-back team. They won 11 last year expectations will be that they should get at least 20 in uh, next season. Um, one example similar to what we're talking about in recent years, 2016, Auburn won 11 games, signed a 2016 recruiting class that ranked top 10 in the country. Wow. Yeah. That's the wow. class with Look at Bruce Pearl. But yeah. That hasn't, yeah, that hasn't, uh, hadn't paid off yet. But, yeah. yeah. Now keep in mind, those kids were just freshmen last year. Yeah. So now you get Mustafa Heron back. Uh, Austin Wiley back like the those recruits that will be sophomores this year and uh, maybe that'll be the breakthrough year I don't know but um, it's at least that it just happened recently yeah I didn't think that that Auburn class was that good but there we go yeah it, uh, top 10 uh, 2015-16 season they finished 11-20 overall 5-13 and in the SEC and the subsequent recruiting class which is exactly what we're talking with with UNLV the one that's about to enroll uh, was ranked 10th in the country that's according to 247 uh, sports. Before we get out of here, I uh, wanted to wrap up with this. The other uh, big story in college basketball, frankly, uh, over the past week, certainly over the past day, um, is the story of the college basketball writers and analysts and, and personalities who, who lost their jobs in college hoops. Um, Dane O'Neill, Eamon Brennan, Andy Katz, C.L. Brown, Lynn Elmore, Elsewhere at ESPN, our former colleague at CBS Sports, Brett McMurphy, Ethan Strauss, Chantel Jennings, Brian Bennett, Jason Stark. Uh, too many to name them all, which is a true and depressing sentence. Um, just a sad day for a lot of our friends, a sad day for the profession we're in. But not just sad, but, but also scary because it's a reminder that you know everybody's vulnerable in this profession on some level uh, because these are not untalented or unaccomplished people. These are some of, of the very best, uh, some of the most accomplished. Like Dana's one of the best writers who writes about college basketball. Brett is one of the great newsbreakers and, and sort of the, the, the guy who broke most of the stories as they related to conference expansion and realignment. I mean, Andy Katz is Andy Katz. I mean, he, he could break a story. He could host a television show, not just sit at the desk, but like host the show. All of these people are, are good people, all sacrificed, um, really at no fault of their own. It was weird uh, to watch it all unfold 
on social media the way it did because we recognize, and I tweeted a little bit about this yesterday, you know, we recognize that industries all over this country are, are being hit in a variety of ways, and there are layoffs um, happening every day. Um, but those happen to, unless it happens to your mother or your aunt or your neighbor, y- your father, y- your brother, your friend, you, you, they don't register with you. You know it's happening, but it doesn't register with you. What happened at ESPN yesterday? And there are more big names that are going to come out that as the time we're, we're recording, they haven't been published yet, but they, they should be soon. Um, recognizable names and faces, accomplished people. Um, what happened at ESPN, these are um, public figures in a, in a lot of ways, in most ways, uh, and they are friends of ours. So when I, I saw some pushback on people yesterday saying, oh, the journalists are upset when the journalists lose their job. Well, what about the factory workers? Well, it sucks when the factory workers lose their jobs too. Um, to the extent that journalists were tweeting about this yesterday and still today, it's not because we think that our jobs are somehow more important than other people's jobs. It's that these are our friends and and this is our profession. And when you start watching super talented and accomplished and recognizable people be told that they don't have a job anymore, um, that's a, it's, it's, it's a sad thing. But like I said, also a really scary thing. Yeah, it is. Um, this has been a pretty dark week for our profession. Um, what I hope is at play here is just simply uh, an economic and business model with ESPN in which um, ESPN is different from basically every other channel on cable because it, it charges so much more per subscriber. And a lot of people are choosing not to subscribe to cable anymore. And ESPN is also very heavily, um, you know, has bid and, and won rights fees to so many different sports um, that this won't be an omen of things to come. Uh, if we want to let listeners in kind of into a little bit of our, you know, daily, weekly, monthly existence, you know, having a job in sports media means that you are constantly wondering and looking and worried about where your standing is and, and you hope you do, you know, good work and, and you can remain relevant enough to where if decisions have to be made in terms of layoffs, um, you're considered valuable enough that your name is not on that list. It is an unfortunate reality. It's not the only profession in which that's the reality, obviously. But the reason why people might be reacting to this more is because Twitter in particular is specifically built for media personalities to share news and comment on news. So that's why it's more predominant in that realm than any other realm. Um, a quick note on some of the people that, um, uh, were unfairly laid off. Uh, C.L. Brown is the best dressed man <laughs> in media. Period. Uh, really solid reporter. Um, had done great work working in Louisville and had covered the Triangle area in Carolina and, and over the past three or four years. And did you see his story? The way he tweeted it, like he's he's in Europe. I uh, know he turned on. Ah, brutal, right? I mean, brutal. I mean, you're you okay? Like. Like a lot of us, you work like hell during college basketball season, and then if you're fortunate enough to take a vacation, um, now is among the times you could you could do it. And so I don't know the details, but CL CL's in in Spain, and you know said he just like trying to completely unplug while he's on vacation, which is what any therapist might tell you to do, like turn your phone off and enjoy Spain. And so he turns his phone off and just is like enjoying a vacation. And turns it on with people asking, 
you know, said he, said he checked his phone for the first time in a couple days. And people are like, hey, just want to make sure you're okay. Wild day at ESPN. And then he finds out that he's not, that he's not okay, that he's on the list of people who would no longer have a job. Like, I mean, it must just rip the joy out of what should be. I a, hope he an, turned his phone awesome... off. And was, I know. I just hope he turned his phone off and just was like, you know what? I'll deal with this when I land right. back on America. Right. Well, I really hope for him. Um, Eamon Brennan. Uh, listen, I reading Eamon's work when he ran the dagger at Yahoo was one of the things that made me want to try and get into college basketball media all the more um, really, really quickly. I mean, I got out of school, uh, was essentially told I would have a, a, a salary job at a daily newspaper. I did freelance stringing and it was never offered that job. I left sports writing for about two years, waited tables while still looking for jobs. Um, and eventually with the blog boom, decided I was going to start a college basketball blog. And some of that was because, you know, I really liked Eamon's writing at the time at the dagger and what he had been doing. Um, and then when he got the job at ESPN, that was a really inspiring thing. And I actually applied for the job to replace him at the dagger. Our, great buddy jeff eisenberg got it but i worked with eisenberg for a solid year before i came to cbs uh i've always enjoyed eman's voice when he writes um found uh that we had a lot of things in common and um i did not i just i none of these people getting let go i saw coming to be honest but like dana o'neill we'll get in just a second she had kind of uh put it out there first and that floored me and then i was like don't tell me if dana's gotten laid off that there's more coming and i was just dreading seeing anyone else pop up and then sure enough uh eman did so uh thoughts with him dana o'neill i did not know of her work before she got to espn but she had covered college basketball and the eagles and done all sorts of great stuff in philadelphia and i definitely remember because basically i throughout college and then after college a lot of my consumption of college basketball in written form was on ESPN.com. Um, and I'll get to that with cats in just a second here. But um, I definitely remember when Dana got to ESPN, I was getting something with its coverage that I had not gotten before. And she made that site's content so much more well-rounded. She is such a tremendous um, storyteller, also a really good reporter, actually just by total coincidence, two days ago, I started finally reading her book, Long Shots, on the Villanova Championship. Um, I Listen, I would recommend anyone go to Amazon and, and purchase it, especially now. I mean, if you're even remotely interested in college basketball and want a good read for the beach this summer, you know, toss Dana solid and help yourself out and, you know, better your library by adding that book. Um, it's unfathomable to me that someone of Dana's ability got let go. Uh, but when you look across everyone that was let go, um, it just it's it's kind of just one punch after the other. Dana's too good. She'll land on her feet. She'll be fine. Um, but I was definitely angry on her behalf when I saw that um, with cats. So here's how I frame cats. Um, like pretty much every single person listening to this podcast. Um, he was the only college basketball media member until about probably 2010 or so that a college basketball fan could name. And I'm not including like guys that are on TV and commentating. So I'm not including like Jay Billis or Billy Packer back when, or Clark Kellogg or Seth Davis. Like Seth is kind of, was kind of either or cause he, he was known for TV stuff that came from sports illustrated, 
But Katz was like, before he did TV stuff, he was dot-com first. He was the only person in college basketball media that people could could name. Um, And I was absolutely blown away by him being laid off. Um, I thought he would retire there. Uh, He was an institution. He had been there for almost two decades, went to the White House and held court with Obama annually to do that bracket stuff. Uh, hosted outside the lines, had grown to the point where he was hosting his own studio shows. And yeah, you know, you kind of associate Andy with ESPN and college basketball. And that is um, still shocking to me. Still. Um, All the people we've mentioned are really talented. I have to believe that they can and will land on their feet and get jobs elsewhere because they're too good not to. Um, But yeah, it's just, you know, I'm glad we just addressed it on the podcast because it, listen, it's a huge hit to our industry, and um, I hope we don't have to see a day like this again for an extremely long time, if not ever again. Um, but, you know, going forward, um, you know, only wish the best for all of these people. And you know, I told them all, you know, directly, if, you know, reach out to me for anything if, if needed. And, you know, we're certainly thinking of you and uh, and just hope, you know, come the start of 2017-2018 season, um, they're involved in some way because it would be really weird not to see Dana at the Garden and to cross paths with Eamon and not to like bump into cats while covering a UConn game or anything like that. Um, you know, we're rooting for you and you should be just okay, hopefully. The larger thing here is that, and I think Rick Bozich wrote a column about this in Louisville that he posted earlier today, um, seems to be a, like every sp- I don't know if it, I don't know if it's technically true every sport. I think it probably is true. Every sport got hit in some way at ESPN. But college basketball hockey is like gone. Well, so is college basketball. Like in the basketball. middle of the hockey playoffs, they laid off like 10 hockey people. Well, like who's writing about college basketball now at ESPN? Goodman and Borzello, uh Myron Metcalf, right? And John Gassaway, I believe is still there. Right. So I think that's Yeah. I mean, they really took a a big knife to their college basketball. Like it, it's also a statement about college basketball. Like obviously yeah. when you are from above ordered to lay people off, you, you know, you, you figure out where can you afford to lose people and college basketball got hit really, really significantly. And, um, you know, so that's sort of, uh, and yet that's their biggest inventory of games. They air more college basketball on ESPN than any other sport. Right. right. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's weird. I mean, I'm sure there's people who understand, you know, things on a level that we don't who are making these decisions. But um, whatever it's rooted in, um, college basketball took a big hit yesterday at, e- at ESPN. Um, been a lot of speculate. I don't even know why. Like a lot of debate about why this happened with some people throwing out some pretty wild um, theories in, in reality, it's a, it's a complex situation, but the, the explanation of it is very simple. You touched on it earlier, but I do think it's important for, for people who maybe haven't read a lot about this to understand why this happened. It, it didn't happen because these people were not good at their jobs. It didn't happen because um, ESPN wasn't doing good work in, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, this is all rooted in cord cutting. Uh, ESPN is on the hook now. For I believe it's roughly eight billion dollars a year, in, um, in property rights fees. Like you know, for the, when they bought the NBA, when they buy the NFL, when they buy Monday Night Football, when they buy Major League Baseball, when they buy 
you know, the ACC and all of these other properties, um, they commit long term to paying X amount of dollars to each per year. And when you add it all together, I think the number I saw yesterday was in 2017, basically just in terms of, and forgive the you know phrase, but this will make sense to you, in terms of writing checks, I know they're not actually writing checks, but writing checks to leagues to, to, to be allowed to broadcast these games, it's like $8 billion total. That's not counting what it costs to have talent, travel, all the other stuff. Just, hey, NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, all of you, here's $8 billion. And at the time when they made the decisions to commit that kind of money to those properties, perhaps, you know, overbidding, certainly seems to be the case now, it, it made much more sense or, then than it does now. And the reason is because, A, and I don't even know if this is A, but we'll call it A, uh, the, there were other sports networks popping up, at least one of which publicly stated it was going to be a real challenger to ESPN. That's Fox Sports 1. And the only way you can legitimize a sports network is to let it get big-time properties. Like you, And I mean this with all due respect. You can go hire any um, radio host or um, television personality, debate show king you want. But unless you've got big-time sports properties to put with it, people aren't going to come to your channel the way you need them to come to your channel. Um, you can have the best debate shows all day long on every sports network there is, but the, the thing that's going to draw real numbers to your to your to your network is um, NBA games, relevant football games, relevant basketball games, relevant baseball games, so on and so forth. So what does ESPN do? They eat up all the properties. Not all of them, but like most of the great stuff is is broadcast is owned by Disney, ABC, ESPN. So it made sense. Like we don't want Fox Sports One to become something more than it is. We don't want CBS Sports Network to become something more than it is. We don't want NBC Sports Network to become something more than it is. The only way they can do that is by getting these big time valuable properties. Therefore, we're going to keep all the properties. We're going to get them all, or as many as we can. So that was one motivation. And then secondly. They they get a larger chunk of your cable bill or your satellite bill. ESPN does every month than literally any other network that exists. Uh, people don't realize this, I don't think, who don't follow it closely because your your DirecTV bill isn't itemized in this way. Um, but DirecTV negotiates with every network, and for every subscriber in the country, you know that network is getting a percentage. For some channels, it's pennies. For some channels, like these obscure channels that are in your basic DirecTV package, like only a few pennies from your bill goes to them. But for ESPN, it's like seven bucks. Every cable and DirecTV subscriber, satellite subscriber, is paying seven bucks a month to ESPN, whether they know it or not, or whether they watch ESPN or not. And so that's been happening for decades. And so ESPN has been rolling in money. Well, then the world changed. Just like once upon a time, newspapers were hit when the world changed. Like suddenly, you know, one, you know, even 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, certainly, if you wanted to look at box scores, you had to buy your newspaper. If you wanted to um, read about sports, you had to buy a newspaper. If you wanted to sell a car, you had to put it in the newspaper, sell a house, Put it in the newspaper. Look for a job. Buy a newspaper. Go through the the ads. 
um, then the world changed. You didn't have to do any of those things anymore through a newspaper. So the newspapers just got whacked, not because newspapers stopped doing good work, but because the business model was all wrong. Well, this world-changing thing that affected ESPN is, is cord-cutting. People stopped subscribing to cable, stopped subscribing to satellite. Like, I think I saw one estimate where ESPN, because uh, ESPN is losing like 10,000 subscribers a day, not a month, a day. And, and, that's, and, and that's because 10,000 people in this country every day are saying, I don't want DirecTV anymore. I don't want cable anymore. So just do the math on that. That's 10,000 people per day who were paying $7 a month to ESPN. Start adding it up. One estimate I saw yesterday said that ESPN's lost a million subscribers since January 1st. A million. That's a million people who are paying 7 bucks a month to ESPN. So that's $7 million gone in January. Another $7 million gone in February. Another $7 million gone in March. Another $7 million gone in April. Which is staggering. But also um, a reminder that all of these good people losing their jobs, it doesn't even put a dent into the serious financial troubles uh, that ESPN now finds itself in. Um, and so that's the other disappointing thing about this is that a lot of it is to make things look a certain way on paper. A lot of it is to um, uh, encourage investors that you recognize uh, something had to be done, but it doesn't really affect the bottom line in a meaningful way, which means a lot of people don't have jobs today. Um, and it's not really going to save ESPN the type of money that ESPN's losing. Yeah, I'll just finish up with this. You know, the people laid off across a lot of sports here, um, like truly did work that that it was worthwhile. And, you know, there are a lot of people that go to CBSSports.com and ESPN.com and all these sites um, to get analysis and to read stories that's beyond maybe just the surface level stuff they'll see on their televisions. Plenty of people don't. Plenty of people only interact uh, and consume media with what they might uh, see with a score on their phone or what they might watch on SportsCenter or what they might catch on PTI. But there are many people, thousands and thousands, who who know the work of the people involved here. and Or at least if they aren't directly familiar with the bylines, know that if I go to cbssports.com or espn.com i'm going to be able to get certain kind of content uh kind of year round but specifically during the season uh that's a value to me and will you know just further engage my interest in the sport i want to know more i want to know what's happening on the inside and the depressing thing is that a lot of people that lost their jobs did it the right way and there just wasn't a premium premium put on that kind of content and it's not just even one kind i mean whether it's uh strong columnist really good feature writing good reporting, um, you know, uh, foot on the ground reporting, any any kind of stuff, especially, you know, there are people, maybe only a few that cross over that are diehard hockey fans that also listen to this podcast. But if I'm a diehard hockey fan and, you know, ESPN just cuts all their stable of hockey writers right here in the thick of the playoffs, I mean, that's really dispiriting as a consumer of all that stuff. So, again, I hope this is really just a one-time thing. I really, really hope and um, nothing but the best. And if any, we can heal. Help any of our uh, our friends, you know, we're obviously willing and able. But, uh, yeah, just a bummer of a day. This felt like a therapy session. Remember, you can subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. So please uh, go do that. Uh, thank you all for listening, always, but especially in the off season. 
Uh, I mean that sincerely every single time I say it. Uh, We will be back next week. Until then, take care.